Uh, We're going to get started. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We are in the conclusion of our series today, Life and Liberty in the Spirit. Um, Yeah, I I, I feel like, I I have to be honest with you, there's uh, a lot to cover this morning, verses-wise. I want to encourage you up front, we are probably going to be about 35 minutes in and only have gotten to verse 31. (laughs) And some of you are going to be going, and, and I hope you'll see that there's a good reason for that as we read through to the conclusion of Paul's exclamations, which were amazing. So I, I prefaced this early on in the series that it was my heart to, to, to look around and pray about, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, what do we as a church need to hear? And one of the things that he specifically put on my heart was like, in the midst of everything that's been going on, it just feels like, I, at least for myself, and I think for some of us, the rest of us maybe, that this Christian life, you know, is supposed to be the best life, best life ever. It's supposed to be actually really awesome. Um, it has its trials, its struggles, and its suffering. Of course, we know that too. But we're in Christ, and it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be great. <laughs> and yet, uh, the reality is there's some significant struggles. Um, and, and, and so Paul showed us that at the beginning in chapter 7 as it led into chapter 8. And so I, I just hope for you, all of you here today, and those of you who have been watching and listening and uh, following this, that I hope it's been an encouragement. Um, and I hope today will solidify that encouragement because of the Holy Spirit's work and his words that he, he inspired Paul to write. And, and, and from an apostle who at the time is writing this to church in Rome is, is pretty close to the point in time where he's going to be put to death. And yet the joy in this man and, and, and in his words, I hope you can hear it from him today, the joy and the I, I don't care what you do to me attitude because I have Jesus is remarkable. So as a preface, I was thinking about it this week. I I love, I really do, I love good stories. I love books. Uh, I love really good nonfiction books. I I used to be heavily into John Grisham and, you know, lawyer and law books and things like that. And and I just love, I love when a book or a movie or a TV series just has a fantastic story. You get immersed into that story, and, and it just gets to a, a point where two things happen. One, you're like, I don't want it to end. <laughs> like, you know, I don't really want a 1,200-page book, but I don't want this story to end. It's really good, right? And then it's also at a point where it's like, yeah, but how is it going to end? Right? You start to assume in your mind there is a perfect ending to this, and there could be a really bad ending. To this, and, and so you get, after a while, some experience, and I think this is really true about TV series, is where, you know, after seven, eight seasons, you know, you're really into the characters and the story, and then you know the final episode is going, and you're just praying, please don't ruin it. <laughs> Anybody remember Lost? Okay, just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, you want the hero to show up. You want the guy to get the girl, or the other way around. You want there to be a happy ending. The truth is, though, sometimes these endings really let us down. <laughs> they, they just sort of fall flat, and it, it's ruined to a certain extent after all that time. And so you wonder, I wonder if oftentimes, you know, like especially with TV series, did, did, they, did, they, did they plan in advance how it was going to end? Like, did they start there and then work back? Because you get to the ending, and sometimes you look at what they end up doing, and going, no, they just had to end it. <laughs> and, and that's why you end up with a terrible ending. Well, we arrive today at a conclusion, not of the whole book of Romans, obviously, and not just the end of our series at all. 
Um, we reach a crescendo in Paul's words and in chapter 8 today, which is an amazing conclusion. But it's really a conclusion and it's, it's an epicenter of the whole book of the Bible. It's why early on in this series, I mentioned to you that there's a number of uh, theologians and preachers and pastors who have declared and said, this is the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. And it's like, I mean, you know, again, I keep coming back to Ephesians 1, which is actually, if you read it, very similar to some of our texts today. But they say that because, well, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see one of the many, and in, I'm going to suggest profound ways, we're going to see something about the grand view of the author of the whole book, Genesis to Revelation. We learn something about the author of this course, the story of God. That's incredible. And the most incredible thing about it is he's written the perfect story. And he wrote it in such a way that he, of course, knew the ending before the beginning or the ending from the beginning or the beginning and the ending. And it ends perfectly because he wrote it. And that's what we see today. I hope we will see that today. So let me read our text for you, verses 29 to 39, and then I'm going to pray one more time and we'll dive in. Paul writing about God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, I, I just, yeah, again, Lord, just thank you so much for this day. What a, what a privilege it is, Lord, to be able to gather, to gather with your children whom you've foreknown, predestined, called, chosen, 
to be yours. Now and forever, Lord, that we might all be those children. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray today, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I, I just pray that this is such a profound word about you, about who you are, about what you have done, are doing, and will accomplish. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just speak to each one of our hearts uh, in ways that I cannot communicate, but only you can. So take the uh, meager offerings that I honestly have put together and, and, and uh, use them to expound your word today in such a way that, yeah, we hear from you. And we are encouraged in this life and in this walk as followers and disciples of Jesus. So I want to thank you in his worthy name. Amen. So as we begin today, uh, we need to begin, or yeah, we need to begin as we ended last Sunday. And as we noted last week, verse 28, which precedes the verse that we began with today, is, is sort of a, a bumper sticker verse, right? It's one of those verses where many of us have, have taken it out, printed it on a piece of paper, framed it, put it on a wall, memorized it. It's just, it's just a go-to verse. And it, it is. It, it, it's a fantastic verse. Really, it is. The danger with verses like this, as we looked at a, bit, a little bit last week, and I want to repeat, is that they can be plucked out of their context. They become something we just look at and we forget what came before them and what comes after them, really. And that's called the context. And the other thing about this verse, though, is as I want to show you this morning is that's really unique. And I mentioned it last week. If you look in your Bibles, any printed version you might have, an online app version, you're going to see that where we stopped last week in verse 28 is not at a chapter or a, a section ending in your Bibles. The translators are right for the way they did that, but by the same token, we were right to stop there last week, I believe. And the reason for that is that it is a hinge verse. It, it, is, a, it is a conclusion to everything that has come before it, from verse 17, actually, verse 18 primarily, all the way through. It's a conclusion of that, and, and in that context, you can see then that that verse is not about necessarily today. It has a future tense. But then also it begins where we need to start today. It moves us forward into the text for today. So let's have a look at this one more time. Verse 18, it'll be on screen for you. Paul started with this. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So this is where we began last week, and then it with the conclusion in 28, and Paul is saying because, that word for for, uh, for is like because, of what I just said at the end of verse 17, which is, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified, which was to say that because, again, in this present time, the time between when we come to faith in Christ and are declared children of God and heirs with Christ, we will suffer just like him. Just like him. And yet, despite that, I, Paul, do not believe that the struggles, the trials, and sufferings of my life can compare at all to the glory that is to be revealed in us. This man had a picture 
he had a picture of the story super secure in his mind to be able to say those words I would suggest. And then he concludes his teaching on our growing in Christ through his struggles and sufferings, the groanings of creation. Remember that? Our groanings, the groanings of the Holy Spirit on our behalf when we don't know how to are really that severe. And then to the day that we are perfected, we are made like Christ and glorified. He says in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. So again, this is not saying, as some of us hope today it does, <laughs> that God will work out our current struggles and sufferings for our good, like, by next week. It's not saying that. You know what? He does from time to time. Do that. To, again, just, just to plant that hope in us, but that's not the point. The point is, is that when we one day stand before Christ, we are no longer in our bodies, but are be, being with Christ, dead, buried, and with him, then we will see that he has worked all things out. All things. It's happened through all of your life, it says here. All things. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He, your God, will work together for your good as part of his purpose. His purpose. And so I, I feel like we can put an amen and a bow on that. That was last week's sermon, right? It's a good word, not from me, but from him. It's encouraging. So now let's look at this verse as the hinge between these thoughts and what lies ahead for us in our text today and see how it applies. So look again at that verse, and we see this. Paul says, and we know. Important three words that he starts off with. And so the question is, who, who is he speaking to here when, he, when he's writing this? And he's writing to the church in Rome, we know that. So, so you go back to chapter 1, and it's his introduction to the letter, and he's writing to the church in Rome, and he says these words in verse 7, to all those, look at that word, in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So yeah, obviously he's writing to the church in Rome who are, again, remember this, loved by God. Called to be saints. And so when we're back in 828, when he says, and we know, we know that he's speaking to the church, that he's speaking specifically to saints in Christ who are Christians. They are the ones who, they are the ones who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so again, as we look further into verse 28, we see a key word that is repeated a fair bit here in this text today. And that key word is the word those. It's really important as we look at the context, you'll see it today, I hope. It, it is those in chapter 1, verse 7, who are loved by God, and it is those here, who do what? In verse 28, who, who do what? Who, who know a lot about God, have taken theology 101, 102, 103, right? Especially in and election of God, that, right? Those people, right? That you've got a lot of facts in your head, 
those people who, you know, who can, you know, like basically recite most of the key doctrines of the faith. You know, put up a good fight for them too. Actually, no. It says those who love God. Those who love Him. And so I have to ask the question, do you love God? Do you love God? It would appear in our text today and obviously throughout the whole Bible that it is the mark of a true Christian. It's what sets us apart. It's it's the thing that people, these people love God. Not just his, the, the Bible, they love God. They're not just, they just believe in him in some mystical, you know, supreme being. No, no, they seem to have, quote, that personal knowledge and relationship with him. It's that kind of love. And so that's, that's who Paul is referring to here. He's not only referring to those kind of Christians. What is it? He's encouraging the church in Rome people in Rome who attend church to love God, to love God. So you will remember when Jesus was asked what was the most important commandment, right? He was asked, what's the most important commandment? And all of the people on that day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes who were trying to trip him up, were like, we're waiting for, not just, you know, like, give us one commandment. If we fulfill that commandment, we're good with God. Like, they knew what the answer should be. And he gave it to them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. With your all. Oh, and the second is neighbor as you love yourself. And so again, the hallmark of a Christian is their attitude towards God. First and foremost, it is their attitude towards God. And also, look again, they they are also marked out by God's attitude towards them, right? They are called according to his purpose. And so here's a key for us today. The Christian's love for God is based on, I think some of you already know this, most of you know this, I hope you do. It's based on his initiative. We did not first love him, he loved us first, right? That's really important to see. We are called. The Christian's love for God is based on God. Act first, pardon me, in loving us. So he called us in love to love him as his children, as part of his family, to be in a loving, reciprocal relationship. You know, I think about it this week, and I'm your pastor, I should know this. I've been a Christian, what, 43 years? Still a lot of work to be done. And, you know, just, just, just the whole idea that he, he just wants a people for himself who love him. For himself. That's all he wants. So as we move forward today, that is the key to understanding, I believe, what follows. But also understanding one of the great doctrines, and that key is this. The calling of God is not something that we had any part in either, listen, initiating or denying, frustrating one commentator, put it that way. We didn't have any part in initiating it, but we also have no part in frustrating it. Whom God chooses, whom God calls, 
they're chosen and they're called. Can't frustrate God. We can't do that. So he was the initiator, and without him doing that, we would all be, listen, dead in our sins, our trespasses and sins, without any hope for eternity, right? Ah, this is the gospel. This is the best part about it. It's not up to me. There's, there's a bar, and considering my height, that's too high that I can't jump over or I can't accomplish. I just know that's true. So another truth that we see here is that all things, again, all things work together for good. For who? Those who love God. It's a specific group of people where all things eventually will work out for good. I'll let you figure out that on your own, maybe in mission community group, what that means for those who do not love God. Therefore, from the all things perspective, we must understand that exa- that's exactly what it means. God works together everything, the good, the bad, and I said earlier, the ugly, even, listen, our failings to do good. He's going to work those to our good and to his purposes. So the first thing we should take from that is, again, encouragement that should also produce joy and contentment in our lives. We can, we can trust that even the little things and the big things will all be worked out, but look, not in our own strength and in our willpower, but by his will and his purposes. He will work it out. I'm lying awake last night after a late night at an amazing musical in Vancouver, and I'm just, this is rolling around in my head, and I'm like, wow. Do I really realize that every moment of every day? No. Okay? I can tell you I don't because I just keep wondering, What's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? When's this going to get worked out? What? This is a problem. And it's my fault or her fault, his fault, whatever it could be. He's going to work it all out. He will work it all out. Secondly, and this is, this is hard to grasp. Trust me, I struggle with this. But it also means that when you and I think that something has gone completely wrong or should never have happened to us or someone we love, we need to hold on and realize if you or they are in Christ, it's not gone wrong. It's actually not gone wrong. You didn't get the job. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't get the guy. You didn't get the girl. It's not gone wrong. It just flies against human reasoning, doesn't it? At least it does in my mind, I think. So thinking this way, thinking and actually believing this way of what the Scripture is teaching us here takes a lot of fear and anxiety away, doesn't it? Glenn, preach to yourself. <laughs> I am, trust me. And finally, back to Paul's lament in chapter 7, doesn't it? Uh, This verse tells us that there's nothing we can do as Christians to ruin God's plan and purposes in and with our lives. All really means all. Let me repeat that. All things really means all things. Wow. If if we could just leave today and say amen to that and and actually live that out, I got to believe pandemic, <laughs> protests, whatever's going on, just, it's, it's life, it's happening, but in the grand scheme of things, all things, for those of us who are in Christ, will work out. And so, of course, it includes even our backsliding and our sin. Can you believe that? 
Sin, of course, is always bad. It's always a, a terrible thing. It's always a, a, a... And we will always live to regret its painful consequences on our lives. We will. We will. But God is so great that he weaves into our, even these things, into our ultimate good. Man, I, I got to, and this is the thing about songs like 10,000 years, you know, and things like that. I just got to believe, like, when you're in eternity and you're looking back and you're going, that, you, you are amazing. Because <laughs> that was ridiculous what I did or what I thought was happening. And, and you've worked it all out to show me, well, he's going to work it all out to show us how wonderful and gracious and beautiful he is, first of all, right? But he's also going to show us how much we are loved. So we know that we are to love God because he called us. He initiated in an act of loving us first, called us to his purposes, and has assured us he will work all things out for our good. That's pretty good news. That's the gospel. Amen. Put a bow on it again. Paul wants to teach us now in conclusion some more about this. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn pardon me, among many brothers. So there we have the key again, the key word, those, in this text. And since we already know it means Christians, uh, what new do we learn we need to ask about, or what does this teach us new about our relationship to our God? Well, a few things. To start with, uh, he foreknew us. He foreknew us. And secondly, he also predestined us. And then thirdly, for his purpose, which is to conform us to the... So he foreknew us, he predestined us, and for the purpose of conforming us to the image of his son. So now before we go any further, let me just say a few words to a couple of groups of people maybe in the room today, right? Who may have... May have read ahead in our text today, and, and, and we're, we're kind of looking forward to this morning, having previewed the, the verses, that maybe that we'd be looking at a, a open-shut case uh, uh, about the doctrine of election, right? And, and Glenn, yeah, this is the time to preach it, you know, close the book on this, open, shut, done. Well, as I mentioned to someone this morning, there's probably also some people who are like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, please don't, you know? I struggle with this. And that's the truth in the church today. It, it, it actually really is the truth. We, we, we struggle with this. And quite frankly, even if, if you're like open and shut, you're still going to struggle with it. You're still going to struggle with this. And if you're not, I've got some questions for you, which we can talk about afterwards. So I just want to say two things on this at this point because we need to move into the text and I want to show you something. But number one, uh, if, if you're looking for our position as a church on this whole subject, because really, Paul doesn't answer this in chapter 8. It actually gets answered fully, or more so, in chapter 9. And we'll look at one verse related to that a little later. But you can look at our, uh, what, what we believe on our website, our statement of faith as a church, and under the plan of God, pretty, make, pretty much makes it clear what we believe and where we stand on that. But also, for those of us who really struggle for this, I'm going to post after the service on our Facebook page, private and uh, open Facebook pages, a really good article that answers some of the three key questions that many of us have about this that we struggle with. 
And again, if you don't struggle with these questions, I'm not sure you've really understand, understood the doctrine really well, okay? So it's all very important, regardless of our views on the doctrine of election, to remember, listen, who this God is. Who you, if you can say it's true, love, right? And, and, and my comment would be, we must, I must, always let God be God. There, there are things about our God that we in this lifetime are not going to fully, fully grasp and understand. That's why he's God. And so we've got, to be, we've got to be careful not to impose our human reasoning or emotions onto him. During our devotions this week, Janice and I were in the book of Exodus. Again, it's the Holy Spirit's way of doing things with me. You know, I got a passage to preach, and then all of a sudden he's going, okay, this might, this might be helpful, right? It's right there, right? And, and we're reading about the story of, of Moses and Pharaoh, the people of Israel, the Exodus, and all of that. And, and uh, it just gets to this point where, like, you know, it's about who God is. Who is the God that we declare we love? These are his words in Exodus 4.11. To Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? We also learn in the story of Exodus that God did predestine Pharaoh for what? Destruction. It's, it's his role in the story. It's not a good one. This could uh, very easily at this point take us back again to asking the question, do you love God? Do you love this God? In the next chapter of Romans, in chapter 9, where Paul does get more into the subject of election, uh, he also quotes, quotes uh, from uh, Exodus, and God's words to Moses in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, where God says this to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul adds, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Translation, we don't get to choose who gets mercy. God does. Verse 29 again, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what Paul is doing at this point in verses 29 and 30 is again providing great encouragement, or should, we should take it this way, to those who are in Christ. He's laying out five at least steps, we'll look at a few this morning, um, that show us what God has done to save us and make us his children, his people. And the first, of course, is he foreknew us. And so there's one line of thinking. This is a line of thinking that is part of that doctrine aspect that people have. And that is, is that, well, well, God being omniscient, which means like he knows all things, at some point before the dawn of human history before creation, he, he looked down through the tunnel uh, of history and he went, oh yeah, that person over there, yeah, they, oh yeah, they, they accepted Jesus on that day. Oh yeah, okay, so I'll choose them. And oh yeah, Glenn too, he, he did, yeah. When he was 23, it took him a little while, but still working on him. But there's that view that God 
did that, that he looked down through this, and, and that's how he knew them, and God chose them in that way. But listen, this verse is not dealing with that, number one, but it's also not saying that. And that's really important. That's why I lean on certain words, right? Like words like those. And so when you look at the text, it is telling us this. It is speaking of those whom he foreknew. Not, listen, that which he foreknew. Those people, individuals, persons whom I've chosen. He foreknew us, not what we would do or what anyone would do, whether accepting or not accepting Christ. But it gets much better than that. The truth is, of course, God knows, does know the future. Of course he does. And that's why he is said to be these things. He sees everyone who has ever lived, but that's not what Paul or the Scripture refers to when it uses the word knows. When we read that God knows someone, it means that he has literally focused his love on them in a personal and relational way. So before the foundation of the world, he knew you if you're in Christ Jesus here today, and at that time, he established a love for you in a personal way. We know that in the first book of the Bible, that we, we learn that Adam, what? What's that word? Knew his wife, right? And of course, many people just believe that's code for intimate relationship, right? Well, yes, much more than that. It's, it was that he knew her, passionately knew her as the woman that God had provided for him to be his wife, to be his helpmeet, and for a personal relationship that was, yes, intimate, which is what God designed it for. Full intimacy. And so that's how he foreknows us. On that note, however, you'll also remember at one point where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes are like trying to impress Jesus, right? And, and, uh, and Jesus at some point says to them, listen, and they're like, you know, just remember, well, he tells them what's going to happen. You're going to stand before me, and some of you are going to say, hey, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do these amazing things? And Jesus is going to say these words to them. Remember what those words are? I never, what? Knew you. Now, hold on. He's Jesus. <laughs> is he saying, I don't know your name is Bob? Or I don't know the things that you've done? No, I, I didn't know you, foreknow you. I didn't choose you or call you. So this is about those that he's foreloved, really. That's another way of looking at the whole idea of foreknew. Verse 30 says, and those, again, look, whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I just I get to this, it's not even in the notes, but I'm just looking at, do you see this picture here? This is all of it, right? This, this, is, this is the author of the Bible saying that here it is in, in one verse, the explanation that shows you that, and tells you that before the foundation of the world, I called you, chose you, foreloved you, predestined you, and by the way, I sent my son into the world to die for you, for your sins, I justified you, 
I will sanctify you and I will prepare you for glory. And I will carry this out to the very end. Okay, that was just a little a side note, just hopefully a help. So the next step then for those whom he foreknew is he predestined us. So now again, I need to ask everyone who's on various sides of the doctrinal spectrum not to impose on this text that it is saying that means that God predestines some people to go to heaven and some to not go to heaven, to go to hell. Because the text isn't saying that. It's speaking, this text, about Christians. I love what uh, Keller says related to this. He says, to predestine means, look, to set a destination for ourselves or someone else. Now, we're not doing that in our case, but that's what the word literally means. It means to make a plan ahead of a time. In Greek, the word literally means to determine horizon and set out for it. A horizon that's set in advance. God, it says, he says, because of his love for us, has set a destination for you, for me, to be with him in glory, conformed to the likeness. Of Christ. So predestined tells us that God has selected beforehand the goal toward which he is moving every one of us who believes in Christ. The goal is conformity to the character and image and person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what goes on in our daily lives and our sanctification and the struggles and our sins and our brokenness and all the things we're dealing with. It's like, okay, these things are not good. Let's, let's face it. But at the same time, God is going, hold on. How are you responding to this? Are you responding as a person who knows that I'm going to work this all out for your good? If so, how should you respond to it? Well, differently than I normally do. I don't know about the rest of you guys. That's what God is encouraging us to see here. So now, of course, in all of this, there's still a problem that we have all to face, as I alluded to a little earlier. The problem is is that we know that not all will choose the narrow gate. Many will choose the wide road. We know that. And so simple human logic, and it's answered in the article that I, better than I'm going to tell you this morning, and at more at length, the common logic of the human mind is, well, if God didn't predestine many to hell, he has by omission when he only chooses and predestines a few. That's a struggle. It it, it more or less comes down to this. It more or less comes down to the idea, and listen, you can be a non-Christian, you can be a Christian, you can be a struggling Christian, and it's still going to be the struggle for you. It seems like it's not fair, right? For God loves the whole world. God, I I do love you, but in in my human intellect, in my human mind, it's fair. Let me rephrase this. Do you believe it was fair that he chose you? Hold on. All of us who are in Christ must at some point admit, I didn't deserve this. And so, yeah, the truth is what is truly unfair is that an innocent man was nailed to a Roman cross spit upon, reviled, killed, and buried. That's unfair. 
It's even unfair that, if you think about it, because of what he did for you and for me, we get (laughs) what we get. Well, yeah, it's not fair. It's called what? Unmerited favor. It's called grace. So friends, again, looking at verse 30, this is the great encouragement that these verses are intended to give you and I today. The Holy Spirit wants you to know that since you were called for loved and predestined and justified by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the elect, for you, you can fully trust that your heavenly Father will finish the work. And you can also see it this way. You can now begin to see that your story is fully interwoven into his story. And if his story is going to work out perfectly, so is yours. If you're chosen and his. At this point, Paul kind of loses it. And I love this about Paul. And this is our conclusion, which will wrap us up quicker than you might think. He says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Just imagine where he's at at this point when he's dictating this to Tertius, right? We're told that in chapter 16, by the way, he's dictating it to someone who scribes it for him. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, I can almost, I can almost like see Paul at this point when he's dictating this to Tertius, kind of like smacking himself on the head saying, can you believe this? And then saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, Tertius, don't, don't, don't write this down. What then shall we say to these things? <laughs> a little more eloquent, a little bit more of the Holy Spirit, but I don't know. I, I sense exuberance in this man. I just sense an excitement that it's like, bring it on. Whatever you've got to bring on me unto me, and I know you're going to put me to death at some point. I'm not going to deny, the, deny this guy. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. It doesn't matter. I'm going to keep sending out letters that, that say that this is sin and that is sin. I don't care what you do to me. It's going to continue. He's just so excited. I really like this guy. So first what he does here, look, is he argues... With God on our side, with God on your side, how is it possible to lose anything in this life? Not that it's all about winning certain circumstances, but who can be against us? And so let me just read what he, he says in the next few verses. And, and just think about the who's here. There's a contrast in who's, okay? It won't be on screen, so you're going to have to listen or read along in your Bibles. He says, any charge against God's elect, it is God who justifies. Ever felt attacked? Ever felt criticized? Ever felt like you're being put on the defensive? (laughs) Sure. God justifies you. He will be your defense. He will be mine. Who is to condemn Oh, Paul, wait a second. I remember the first verse. Now, therefore, there is what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a really amazing bookend that he's getting to here, isn't it? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
He is the one who was condemned in your place. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, interceding for us. He's doing your battles for you and for me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And so this whole chapter started off with there's therefore now no condemnation. It ends with there's no separation. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul then concludes with words, I believe, intended to remind us day in and day out, every moment of every day as we live out our calling and the beauty of the Christian life that God has chosen us for to remember a few words in relation to all these things. And I think there's basically three words and they are, remember these words, nothing, no one, none of the above. Verse 37 is his inspiration for you and for me when he says no. (laughs) Nothing, no one, none of the above. In all things, these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Look, the Christian life is intended to be the best life ever, ever, pardon me, and it's, it's intended to be victorious. We're to have victory over things. How? By not walking according to the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit in every day and in every moment. He ends with these words. For I am sure. That word in the Greek is like, I am really, really, really certain. You can't can't knock me off these things. I will not change my mind on these things. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once again, remember those three words. Nothing. No one. None of the above can separate us from the plan of salvation that God has predestined to complete for us in the power of the Holy Spirit's day and age that we live in. This is the life of liberty in the Spirit that we're not only called to, that we're given. Let's enjoy it. Let's go and enjoy it. Pray with me, would you?